0: This is a Triple J Podcast. <laughs> hey, it's Dave Marchese. Welcome to the Hack Podcast. We'll get ready to be poorer, less productive, and hotter. Not look-wise, temperature-wise. That's what we've got to look forward to in Australia 40 years from now, according to a new government report. So are these predictions accurate? And what will work look like for us when your, your parents or your grandparents age? We're unpacking the future of work later in the show. We've got a futurist on, which has to be the best-sounding job title in the world. Also, later, Hack is on the ground in Canada, checking in with Aussie Fiery, who are helping battle the worst blazers on record over there. First, though. Hack.
1: At exactly three minutes past one local time, the cleanup of the Fukushima power plant entered a new phase. On Triple J. I'm going to level with you. When I heard Japan's
0: just started releasing millions of tonnes of radioactive water into the Pacific Ocean, was feeling pretty uncomfortable. This water, it comes from the Fukushima nuclear power plant, which was hit by a tsunami in 2011 that was brought on by a massive earthquake. Now, nearly 20,000 people died in that earthquake and tsunami. And the nuclear disaster was the worst since Chernobyl in 1986 over the past decade the power plant company in charge of the power plant has been trying to deal with the fallout including a lot of radioactive water and there's nowhere for them to store the water anymore experts are saying it's safe so it's being released into the ocean in a minute we're going to speak to an environmental scientist who's been following this since the tsunami he's going to tell us how safe the water is what kinds of impacts we might expect if any But first, here's Miles Holbrook-Walk to bring us up to speed. Twelve years ago, the largest
2: earthquake ever to hit Japan was recorded. A violent magnitude 9.0 earthquake
3: on March 11th, 2011.
1: Well, it was absolutely unlike anything I've ever experienced before.
2: It was actually this giant wave that brought more devastation than the earthquake, taking away thousands of lives and causing damage worth hundreds of billions of dollars. Waves as high as 15 meters crashed over the coastline. As thousands of people died, communities were wiped out. When you watch the video of this earthquake, you see buildings shaking violently. When the tsunami hits, buildings are destroyed and cars bounce like dinghies in the ocean. It's horrific. And one of the most serious issues is something that's still a major problem for the Japanese government. The destruction of a nuclear reactor. Then an explosion at a nuclear plant spread radiation throughout the region. Radioactivity and a disaster of unknown proportions. In the years since the tsunami, more than 100,000 people have been displaced and a project to manage heaps of nuclear waste has been in the works for years. Basically, the power plant operator has been spraying seawater over the damaged reactors to stop them overheating, but then that water is contaminated and it's been stored for years in huge tanks. Now there are more than a thousand huge tanks packed with it. It's enough to fill 500 Olympic sized swimming pools. They've run out of room to store it, so this week the contaminated water's been released into the Pacific Ocean.
0: The UN's nuclear watchdog gave the go ahead to discharge more than a million tonnes of wastewater from the facility.
2: Obviously, people are freaking out. So, is the water safe? Well, scientists say yes.
4: The dose to the consumers who are at most at risk, radiologically, I would call that insignificant.
2: But local fishers are not happy.
4: Why does Fukushima have to suffer the most? We were victims
1: once. Why do they have to release it in Fukushima? If they released it evenly throughout Japan, it would
4: be far less damaging to our reputation.
2: And they're not the only one raising concerns. China is also unhappy as the impacted waters are nearby.
1: Beijing says that it
0: will carefully assess any possible effects and will protect Chinese consumers. And it warns that Tokyo must, quote, bear all the consequences of its actions.
1: Hack on Triple Jack. Miles
0: Holbrook-Walk with that update. Let's find out a bit more about this. Jim Smith is a professor of environmental science at the University of Portsmouth in the UK. He knows so much about this particular situation and he's with us now. Hey, Jim, thanks for coming on Hack. I want to ask, you're an environmental scientist, but you think releasing this radioactive water into the ocean is the right thing to do. Can you explain that? Why Why is that?
4: Yeah, so this release of treated wastewater, Fukushima, since about 2012, they've been accumulating all the wastewater that's been going through the reactors and contaminated groundwater. They've been accumulating it in about 800 giant tanks. Uh, And now there's a total of 1.3 million cubic meters of it. And I would call it slightly radioactive. So it's not super dangerous, um, but it still has traces of radioactivity in it. And one of the things it's got in is a thing called tritium. So tritium is a radioactive form of hydrogen. And what happens in nuclear power plants around the world is that a, a very few of the water molecules passing through the reactors get converted into from ordinary water, which is H two O, into what we call tritiated water, which is where one of the hydrogen atoms has been replaced by the radioactive form of hydrogen, which is tritium. So it becomes H T O. The problem with that is so so. Nucleocytes can take out almost all the radioactivity from their wastewater, but it's practically impossible to separate the tritiated water from the ordinary water because it behaves chemically and biologically exactly the same. And so what sites around the world do is to discharge that water into rivers or lakes or, in this case, into the sea. And it's a practice that's been going on for decades and actually, many in many cases, at much higher levels than than will be from this fukushima release
0: right so it's quite common for this to happen this practice of releasing water
4: yeah everywhere everywhere so there's sites in in china that emit about three times more tritium into the pacific than this japan release will be there's one in the uk that emits um probably about 20 times to, to 40 times more and there's a reprocessing site in the north of france that emits 450 times more tritiated water into the english channel between the uk and france and and that's been going on for decades and we haven't seen really significant radiation doses from that so is the water
0: safe in the sense like could you drink the water
4: yes well if it wasn't salty yes so so the water is going to be diluted so that the the water is treated to be below the the limit for discharge in japan And then it's going to be diluted 100 times by seawater. By that time, it'll have 1,500 becquerels. So we measure radioactivity in in a thing called a becquerel. Um, So it's 1,500 becquerels per litre of tritium. And the World Health Organization drinking water limit for tritium is 10,000 becquerels per litre. So yes, in theory, you could drink the water. Is there any
0: kind of gamble here in terms of marine life? Like, could there be some unforeseen consequences that we don't yet know about? Do we know how all marine life reacts to this kind of water?
4: Yes, pretty pretty much. As I say, there's been all these decades of experience. There have been lots of lab- laboratory experiments which show that there can be small effects of radiation on organisms, but they're really very subtle. You know, we know that radiation can do DNA damage and, Natural radiation does the same, but but we don't see significant effects. For example, we've studied ponds around the Chernobyl nuclear site, where there was the terrible accident in 1986, and they're much more contaminated than the the sea will be around Fukushima. Um, And we haven't seen really significant impacts on the ecosystem. So we think we're seeing quite subtle effects on the reproduction of fish uh, of one species, But in general, the fish population is is healthy. The health indices are are okay. The aquatic insects that are living in the contaminated sediments there have similar abundance and diversity as in other lakes in that region. And so we don't really see significant effects even on aquatic systems at Chernobyl that are much, much more contaminated than, than the Pacific will be.
0: What's the alternative to releasing this water? Obviously, as you mentioned, it's been stored for so long and it just keeps banking up. Do you think it's more dangerous yeah. for it to be in that situation?
4: Yeah. Well, I I mean, there's always the danger. If things are in tanks, there's always the danger of leaks. And if there's a typhoon or, or another... God forbid, another a tsunami or earthquake could get an uncontrolled leak. The other thing is, is, practically, the Japanese are simply running out of space on the Fukushima site. They need to get on with the, what to me is the more important problem of decommissioning the reactors at, at Fukushima. And they need the space to do that. So the discharge to sea, I think, is the best option.
0: There's a big fishing industry around Fukushima. It's already taken a beating over the past few years. Do you think it's going to spell the end of that, that even if the fish is safe and this won't have uh, horrible consequences as forecast, that people still won't want to eat it?
4: Yeah. I mean, I understand that the fishermen are really concerned about this because they know, and I suspect they they probably accept the science, which is that the, the fish is totally safe. But they know that the reputational damage to their their industry will be significant. The Japanese government has said they're going to compensate them, but I, I think we we have to we have to do things based on science because you know this is this happens all over the world and 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 nobody, for example, is trying to stop the fishing and they're not. This people we in Britain are still eating the fish from the English Channel quite happily, and I think we have to accept the science and do the scientifically the the right thing. But the fishermen, I understand, need to be compensated for the damage this is going to do to their livelihoods. I suspect they'll still be able to sell the fish, but maybe at, at, at a lower price. Yeah. Do you think the
0: politics has taken over the science in this situation a bit?
4: Uh, yes. Yes. That's my perspective as a scientist. Um, I think inevitably the, the the feelings about the Fukushima accident and and some of the politics in in Asia is yeah has taken over. I think also there's a there's a very effective anti-nuclear lobby who very effectively put their side of the story and perhaps we scientists haven't made enough effort to explain the, the science behind it.
0: Well, we definitely appreciate your insight into this. Someone who's been looking at it for years and is a real expert, Jim Smith from the University of Portsmouth. Thank you very much for speaking with us on Hack. Thank you. And we've got a lot of messages on the text line now. Someone says, let's see the experts who say it's safe Drink the gear. Real world testing should not happen in 2023. That's someone's thoughts there. Another person, if the scientists say it's fine, I'm fine with it. They know a lot more than us. And somebody else, I find it funny that we're worried about this when scientists say it's fine. But on the other hand, scientists have been telling us climate change is what we need to worry about, and nothing's done. Heaps of opinions. We'll be hearing a lot more in the weeks ahead. Time to move on.
4: Hack. This isn't the first time that we've had to make choices about the kind of country that we want to be. Future makers or future takers. But it might be the most important time.
1: This is what the future of Earth looks like. On Triple J.
0: You know, you've probably thought at least a little bit about what your life's gonna look like in the future. Like when you're the age of your parents or even your grandparents, what do you imagine? Like, maybe it revolves around a relationship or family or having a nice house. Do you ever think about work? What you'll be doing in 40 years' time for work? Because the Treasurer, Jim Chalmers, released a big report today, Intergenerational Report, and it predicts Australia four decades from now. Most of the stuff in there, not too surprising. We're going to be living longer. There'll be a lot more old people. That'll be you by that time. And there are other predictions in there about tax, about government debt and that kind of stuff. Obviously, climate, it's going to be a lot hotter. They're the predictions. So what will all this mean for you? Well, Dr Ben Hamer is a futurist from Swinburne University of Technology and he's with us now. Hey, Ben, thanks for coming on Hack. Thank you for having me. Can you quickly tell us what a futurist is? Like people hear that and are probably pretty intrigued.
1: Yeah, I'm still trying to explain it to my parents. Um, <laughs> so it, it sounds like a bit of a made up job title, but um, essentially, a futurist is someone who. Uh, looks 10 years plus into the future. So within organisations, sometimes we look at what happened historically and just kind of project that forwards and maybe over a couple of years. This is looking at what are the trends that we're seeing around the world today and then pushing that into the future. So not being informed by what's happened in the past and this is the way we've always done it, but the trends we're seeing today, throwing it forwards and, and working our way backwards to see how do we either get there or like with the intergenerational report, what's some stuff we actually want to avoid.
0: It's fascinating stuff. And crazy to think that you're always living in the future, effectively, thinking about what's to come. We've got this intergenerational report, as I mentioned. There's a lot in there talking about productivity, aging population, climate. What do you think the main takeaway is for young people?
1: Yeah, so for, for younger people, I think there's a few things. I mean, you said it in your intro that um, when we're talking about people who are age 65 plus, and that cohort's going to have doubled um, in 40 years' time. That's people who are listening to the show, right? So Mm. um, they're in scope. When we look at what that means in ageing population, it means that there's less people of working age to actually pay tax to fund the required levels of aged care and hospitals and defence, et cetera. So, you know, as working Australians, um, we're going to feel it in our hip pocket because the government's going to have to figure out how they're going to actually pay for all this stuff without going more and more in debt. Um, And then in terms of the jobs of the future and from a perspective of work and education, you know, I read something that said the other day that in Australia we have fewer and fewer people actually graduating high school and yet over the next five to ten years, over 90% of the jobs, Um, new jobs that emerge will need people to have not only high school, like finishing high school, but need post-school qualifications as well Um, because they're going to be things like, blockchain data privacy analysts or people building metaverse platforms and so we need more people with higher skills and the intergenerational report also said we need double the amount of people going into university as well. So we've seen the government focus a lot on um, VET and TAFE skills and qualifications and free placements in the last few years. I think we'll start to see more around university as well.
0: Yeah, and I think we're already kind of hearing that, especially from government ministers in terms of the universities accord coming out this year, we know they're hammering home that more people are going to need to be skilled for the future. And with technology, I guess it's taking over a lot of the unskilled roles that have traditionally existed. What does that mean about the kinds of jobs that will be left for us to do? I mean, you mentioned some of the jobs there that don't even exist now.
1: Yeah, I mean, it, it, on the one hand, I think that there's a bit of um, the robots coming to take our jobs kind of stuff that's that's resurfaced. So um, I read something the other day where some company was predicting that in four years' time in Australia, 10% of roles will no longer exist because of tech. And to me, that's just absolutely blown out of proportion. The vast majority of jobs will still exist. They'll just look really different. So if you think about when ATMs were implemented and, and um, you know, automatic teller machines, we thought that was the end of bankers. But bankers still exist. There's more of them. They just don't dispense cash now. They do other types of work as well. So you'll see... Most jobs just evolve, still be around, but evolve. But then you're also seeing like the Daily Oz. um, I don't know if you know them, the guys who do the Instagram news stuff. Of course. um, They have a chief of TikTok who's 19 years old. So we'll see that stuff happen. And then you've got wacky stuff like in Japan where you can get paid $80 an hour to be a smiling instructor because with wearing masks in COVID, some people (laughs) have forgotten how to smile. (laughs) I don't mind that
0: job, actually. I'm I'm pretty ready for it. I mean, a lot of your work, Ben, does revolve around work and looking at how that will change in the years ahead. For a 20-year-old listening now, what can they expect work life to look like when they're 60? For instance, we know we're going to be living longer. Do we think that we'll be working longer
1: as well? Yeah, we'll be working longer, not necessarily in terms of the amount of hours in a week, um, and you're also seeing things like the four-day work week, which by the time 20-year-olds are 60, that's most likely to be something that will be everyday life. Um, but people will be working longer. We, you know, we're seeing um, the the eligibility age to get the pension continually getting bumped up. Um, we saw people, because of cost of living during COVID, actually come out of retirement and re-enter the workforce. So, um, we'll be working, you know, I'm 34, I'll be working into my 80s um, because Financially, I'll need to, but also because work is less manual, more cognitive. It's more sort of thinking stuff. Um, So you can. Um, You've also got technologies like exoskeleton suit. So think about what Iron Man wears, an exoskeleton suit. <laughs> um, now that's being used in warehouses with tradies so that they can actually lift a hell of a lot more heavy stuff, but also do it in a safe way. And not only does that help with the immediate risk, but also it means that people can work doing manual labor into their 60s, 70s and 80s because they're not actually having the wear and tear on their body. So We will be working longer. We'll be using technology a hell of a lot more. Um, We'll probably be working um, in a different pattern to what we work now. And, I mean, even the effects of climate change you mentioned, that's going to disrupt the working week, particularly if you have a role that's outdoors. More than likely in 40 years' time, you'll be wanting to try and avoid extreme heat in the middle of the day. So a lot of tradies will probably be operating overnight rather than the standard 7 till 3 that they do now.
0: You're listening to Hack. I'm Dave Marchese. I'm speaking with futurist Dr Ben Hamer from Swinburne University of Technology just about the future of work, what we can expect in the decades ahead. And it's fascinating, the kind of work that Ben and other futurists do predicting what the world will look like, what Australia will look like. I don't know, Ben, the report like basically has said Australia is going to be poorer, hotter, less productive. There's a lot of pessimism in there. Well, I guess it's easy to be pessimistic. And I think young Australians are used to that whenever we're thinking about the future. It's generally not with a whole lot of optimism when we're thinking about the world around us. As a futurist, is there any positive stuff that you can see in there for young people that we should be looking forward to?
1: Yeah, I think, you know, if we even look at the intergenerational report in and of itself, one of the things that, like, like, yes, there's a lot of negativity in it, but it's actually really positive that we're identifying this stuff now because we've got a 40-year lead time to avoid a lot of it. Um, But then there's also a lot of stuff that you don't see on the front page of the news, but actually is really bloody inspiring. So for me, technologies like in India, they deployed facial recognition glasses with their police force and the police force was able to identify 4,000 missing children in three days. Wow. Um, That's the kind of stuff that I love. You've got, Waverly Labs that have these earbuds that are like AirPods you put in your ear and it does instant language translation. So you could be talking to me in a different language, Italian, and then I could be listening to it in real time in English. So language barriers are removed in our lifetimes. Um, also things like x-ray which is the brand x-ray glasses or google xr glasses where for deaf people we could be having a conversation and for hearing impaired it comes up with subtitles on the glasses as we're talking so i can engage in meaningful conversation so there's some really powerful stuff and even personally for me I've got a dad who's got Parkinson's disease. AI can now predict Parkinson's 15 years before the onset of symptoms when human clinicians can't. I have a sister-in-law that has breast cancer and we see that um, AI can detect, uh, hard to detect breast cancers much more effectively and also reduces the rates of false positives by over 25%. So. They're just a handful of things that come to mind when I go, as much as there's a lot of pessimism and cynicism around all of this, there's some really inspiring stuff that says we're in the pretty good hands when it comes to what our future could look like and we also have a level of control now around the steps we can take to avoid some of those not-so-fun futures.
0: Well, that is a good note to leave it on, I'd have to say, because we do hear a lot of bad news all the time, so it's nice to hear about all the positive things we can look forward to, what technology can bring us. I don't know, Ben, you can come back in 40 years if you like and we can revisit what you've just said just to make sure it's accurate if you've earned your salary and you did predict the right thing. But thank you so much for coming on, for breaking all that down. Ben Haymart from Swinburne University of Technology, appreciate your time. Thanks, Dave.
1: Hack. Definitely starting to feel like the new norm.
2: The frequency of these international deployments and the coming together and sharing of
0: resources on the scale that we've seen. On Triple J. You might remember a couple of months ago, we brought you a story about Australian firefighters who'd been sent over to Canada to help fight their worst ever wildfire season. Those fires are still going. Actually, things have only gotten worse. Records keep getting broken across the country. They've had to call in for more help. And Australia's sixth deployment of firefighters is heading over there this weekend. It's confronting, especially for us here in Australia, because just this week, Fire authorities here warned that we're facing the most significant bushfire season since Black Summer, back in 2019-2020. So our fire is helping out in Canada now. They're going to have a big year ahead, probably. Hack reporter Ellie Grounds has been working with the ABC's Foreign Correspondent Program in Canada. And she's been on the fire ground there, speaking with locals and the Aussies, helping keep Canada safe. And she sent us this story. Every
3: morning starts the same way at this fire base in rural Alberta, Canada.
0: The songs is the moral and motivation for us to go to fires to fight and to unite. As for we are from different cultures.
3: Here, it's not just Canadian firefighters who are battling the country's worst fire season in history. A really lovely way to start our day. Thank you so much, South African crews. Around 5,000 foreigners from a dozen countries, including South Africa, the US, New Zealand and Australia, have been flown in to help over the last few months. Kerri-Ann Cummins from Tumut, at the foot of the Snowy Mountains in New South Wales is one of them. It's been thick, dense smoke for days. Up here, it's daylight for three quarters of the day. So you might be fighting the fire for 10, 15 hours and not realise that, oh my goodness, it's... 8.30 8.30 at night and the sun's still in the middle of the sky. So it sort of throws you a little bit. Every day you get back and you take a big deep breath and go, oh, I made it. <laughs> here, everything is different. The terrain, the trees and vegetation, and the flames. In Canada, fires often burn below the Earth's surface.
1: Burning so deep underground, having to dig and dig and dig, 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 dig it into fire, whereas we
4: don't really have to do that.
3: And the wildlife is different too. In the back of my mind just here, I'm like, oh, bears, moose, cougars. You know, I don't really want to be stalked by any of them. An hour away is high level, a highway town with hundreds of motel rooms. They're all full. We scored the last two rooms in the whole town, but it's not tourists or seasonal workers who are staying there, but families. Families whose communities were evacuated in early May and have been living here ever since.
2: I was just begging my kids, please pack your bags, pack your
4: bags. We won't be coming home. Pack everything you can. We just ran, couldn't even grab what we love.
3: Robert Labakan, his partner and their five kids have been living in one motel room for nearly four months after escaping their First Nations community of Fox
4: Lake. I lost my home, I lost my vehicles, I lost all my tools can't do anything but sit home with my kids'
1: Pardon my
3: tears. <laughs> 5% of Canada's population is Indigenous, but this year, Indigenous communities have accounted for more than 42% of fire evacuations, and many still don't know when they'll be able to go home.
4: It's still difficult for the kids, hard on them. Like, they don't understand, really, what's going on. I think some of them are getting pretty tired though, because it's hard to play anywhere.
3: More than 15 million hectares of forest, that's more than twice the size of Tasmania, has burned across Canada so far this season.
1: It's the worst forest fire in record history. It's never happened before.
3: And the country's Minister of Environment and Climate Change, Stephen Gilbo, knows exactly what the culprit is.
1: The link to climate change is very clear. What we're doing now collectively, and that includes in Canada, is leading to the type of climate impacts we saw over the summer.
3: But it's not stopping Canada from expanding its fossil fuel industry. While the fires were raging, the heads of the world's biggest fossil fuel companies descended on Vancouver for an international liquefied natural gas conference. But not everyone was welcoming. Here in British Columbia, the sheer remoteness of some of the blazes means the best way for firefighters to get to them is via the air.
2: That's okay, get it, baby.
3: <laughs> These are the smoke jumpers, a rapid response team of parachuting firefighters who can get up in a plane in minutes and reach any fire front in the province in two hours. Do you still get a rush every time you do it?
1: Uh, yeah, definitely. It's uh, I don't think that ever really goes away. I'm less like terrified now and just more excited. I think. Yeah, the actual jump's pretty chill. It's, it's sometimes our drop zones are a little spicy, and those are kind of those are kind of the days you get a little more nervous.
3: As the planet warms, fire seasons are starting to overlap, and the Aussie firefighters in Canada are already wondering how big our summer is going to be, and whether we'll have enough resources to fight it. I know that we're going to have a bad fire season and we're hoping that we can call on the Canadians then and um, they can support us.
1: There's a lot of folks here in British Columbia that'll be putting their hands up to to return that favour.
3: We're all one big family when it comes to firefighting. So, yeah, we need it, you know, all hands on deck, really. HACK
0: on Triple J. HACK reporter Ellie Grounds reporting from Canada for the ABC's Foreign Correspondent Program. You know, if you want to see more, you can watch the full documentary. It's going to be on ABC TV tonight. Also, ABC iView on YouTube. You'll be able to catch it in those spots as well. There's also a big write-up on ABC News Online where you can see some incredible pictures. It's amazing to think of all the hard work that Australian firefighters are doing overseas at the moment, along with firefighters from all over the world, as you just heard. It's Really grueling work, but there's also those, you know, big communities that are building up, a real sense of camaraderie amongst those firefighters. Still getting a lot of messages through on the future of work story. Someone says, I'm a cleaner. Is a robot gonna do my job? Should I be going back to study to give myself a chance in the future? It's a question a lot of people are gonna be asking in the years ahead. Someone else says, We need skilled laborers. I can't find an apprentice. So lots of thoughts there. And that's all we've got time for on the hack podcast for now. I'll catch you next time. Hack.
1: On Triple Jack.